I think it's pretty clear that Fox News said things that were very damaging to American democracy. But the thing is, American democracy is not suing. Dominion is. It's Wednesday, February 22nd. Today, Eric Gardner joins me to talk about the $1.6 billion lawsuit against Fox News by Dominion Voting Systems, which alleges that the network's hosts and guests defamed the company during their 2020 disinformation campaign in support of Donald Trump's lies about a stolen election. This case is a serious problem for Fox, so why haven't they settled instead of heading to trial? Eric explains. And later, Julia Alexander and Ben Landy drop by to talk about the trouble with AMC, the network behind huge hits like The Walking Dead and Breaking Bad, and why it's struggling to figure out streaming. Can AMC make it on its own, or will it just get bought by Apple? We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of The Powers That Be. Wednesday, everybody. I'm joined today by Eric Gardner to talk about something I am obsessed with, which is the $1.6 billion, I believe, lawsuit against Fox News by Dominion Voting Systems, which is alleging defamation because Fox, their anchors, their guests back in November of 2020, raised lots of questions about whether these voting machines were hacked. Where did these votes go in an effort to help push along the narrative that Someone somewhere stole the election from Donald Trump. Eric, I wanted to ask you about how serious this lawsuit is. Obviously, it's serious and that it's making news. Fox is worried about it. Reading through some of the like the recent text messages, for example, that were found, I guess, in discovery of basically Hannity, Laura Ingram, Rupert Murdoch, Tucker Carlson, basically saying that all of Trump's lies were dangerous, his lawyers were nutcases, but they were going along with it anyway on television. I mean, it seems like not cut and dry, like a slam dunk for Dominion here, but Fox News has to be scared, right? I mean, I would assume that they should be scared. I mean, it's a big case. There's so much in, in, involved in this case. There's massive amounts of money on the line. Remember, this is taking place in Delaware, which is a very liberal state. And Delaware is also a state that has uncapped punitive damages. So, you know, the stakes could not be higher. This mm. is a very much watch case that, you know, I thought was going to be settled because I couldn't imagine that that Fox News would take the, any sort of chances here. But, you know, we're getting very, very close to the uh, mid-April date where this is going to go to trial. And yeah, I mean, it's not a slam dunk. I think a lot of people think that it's a slam dunk. I don't think it's a slam dunk. But definitely Fox News has a very tough uphill road ahead of them. Why don't you think it's a slam dunk? Is this hard to do this to win a lawsuit like this against a media company or news organization? Um, that's part of the reason. Another part of the reason I think that a lot of people overlook is I think it's pretty clear that Fox News said things that were very damaging to American democracy. But the thing uh -huh. is, American democracy is not suing, Dominion is. And so when you start taking a look at like the specific statements and pulling them apart, you know, are these statements that were about Dominion? Were these statements statements of, of facts or were they right. opinions? Were, you know, did they, did they have implications that were damaging? And then lastly, the big question is, was there actual malice? Did the people who are speaking it know that they were lying? 
or were, they were recklessly disregarding things. And, you know, Fox has some defenses here. They might be stretching things when they say that it's, you know, they have every right to, you know, bring the Trump's lawyers on to say whatever they want. But they can say, well, these were guests. And so should we be held liable for what guests say? You know, mm-hmm. I, I mean, yes, they they are, you know, republishing the these statements and everything like that. But the, the question is, you know, did they have knowledge that these guests were going to lie? And Dominion says, yes, well, they, you know, were repeatedly booked on, on the network. There was no pushback or a little pushback. And so, yes, they, you know, essentially endorsed the crazy things that were coming out of Rudy Giuliani's mouth. And it's possible that the judge and the jury will come to that conclusion. I'm just not ready to say that's 100% yet. I do think that there's so much involved in these cases that there's going to be certain statements, especially when I look at what Lou Dobbs was saying, um, that I think are going to be problematic for, for Fox News. And what, what did Lou Dobbs specifically say? He he said that this was the uh, the equivalent of Pearl Harbor. Um, you know, he, he was, you know, saying that his nightly program was going to uncover the voting fraud and, and all that. Mm-hmm. And he mentioned Dominion and, and all that. So there's no question in my mind that, you know, when, when you start talking about Lou Dobbs, Fox News definitely has a problem. And it's no coincidence that, that, that Lou Dobbs is no longer a Fox News host. I mean, they distanced himself for that. And that is also dangerous because now that he's no longer an employee, he's mm-hmm. kind of a kind of a free agent and he's going to appear at, at trial and who knows what he's going to say. And then the other issue is I, I know, you know, what Fox News is going to say at, at trial. They're going to say this company, Dominion, h- hardly anyone knew who they were before before this election. Mm-hmm. They were a small company. They didn't make that much in profit. How dare they allege $1.6 billion? How can they possibly show $1.6 billion worth of damage? So they definitely have a story to tell the jury. I don't know whether it's going to be successful at the end of the day, but I'm not ready to you know, just totally write them off like some people mm-hmm. seem to be doing. Yeah, I mean, you're very right to point out that for People rooting against Fox News here and they want to see their comeuppance like the case is limited to whether Fox News, the company specifically defamed and knowingly lied about Dominion. It's not about did Fox News say fake stuff about the election? That's a pretty broad (laughs) category. A question I have, though, is from a legal angle, why didn't or could Dominion have gone after individuals for defamation? In other words, could you sue Rudy Giuliani specifically? Could you sue Mike Lindell, the MyPillow maniac specifically, or Lou Dobbs specifically, rather than the whole media company? Uh, You know, I believe that Dominion is suing these people. Dominion does have a defamation lawsuit against Mike Lindell for, for instance. And, and yes, I'm not sure whether it's Dominion or Smartmatic, the other voting mm-hmm. company, but they're going after Ruli Giuliani and Sidney Powell as well. So yeah, they're, mm-hmm. they're going after multiple angles. They're not just going after Fox News, they're going after Fox Corporation, the parent company, the Murdoch company. So, you know, they're playing the various different angles here. <laughs> this is, this could be big business for them. Uh, this, this substantial amount of money that, that could be headed their way. Is Dominion still a player in the voting machine space or did like all of these conspiracy theories kind of hurt the company you know well i, I think we're gonna start seeing that at, at trial and in some of the some of the court briefs you know what damage 
uh, this smear campaign actually caused them. Are we going to see election officials throughout the country saying, you know, uh, I, I was going to use Dominion, but then I started hearing this stuff and I couldn't do it. My you know, Republican constituency would just be up in the arms if I booked Dominion. So I, I think that, you know, that's certainly going to be a key part of the plaintiff's case to, to actually show the damage that, you know, they incurred. And the last thing I want to ask you, is there anything that comes to mind, a case, a lawsuit like this against a media company that was successful? Like, is there anything we can compare this to? Uh, what I'd compare this to is a few years ago, there was a American beef company um, uh-huh. that sued ABC News over a series of reports that basically painted their product as pink slime. And they went to supermarkets and talked to vendors and, and all that. And this case took place in uh, North Dakota, which was you know, a very conservative uh, country. Uh-huh. And they put the media on trial and particularly ABC. And they walked away with a settlement that was about $200 million. Interestingly enough, the company that took on ABC News are involved in lawsuits against Fox News, uh, Dominion versus Fox News. They're also representing oh. Smartmatic in, in the, a separate case up in New York against Fox News. So definitely that case and this case ha- definitely have a lot of parallels uh, to each other. Huge stakes cases that really like get into the, the heart of matter of what the media does and, and how it reports things and tries to hold key players responsible for things that are said. Eric, thank you so much for your fair and balanced analysis. We appreciate it greatly. This is a fascinating lawsuit. I report, you decide. (laughs) See you next time, man. Thank you. All right. When we come back, Julie Alexander talks to Ben about the future of AMC. Welcome back, everybody. I'm Ben Landy here with Julia Alexander. Happy Wednesday, Julia. Happy Wednesday. How are you? I'm good. You just published a piece about the trouble facing AMC. And I was so happy to see you write this because I'm a huge AMC fan. I love the network. I love their shows. But I feel like I am exactly the the perfect example of the problem they have with subscribers to their streaming service, which is it feels like there's not quite enough to keep me there. Like I I keep subscribing to watch one show. Like um, I signed up for Dark Winds. I paid my $8.99. And then I canceled as soon as that show was was over. But what I didn't realize until you wrote this piece for Puck is that AMC doesn't actually own most of its big shows, which is part of the problem with their streaming service. Can you explain that a little bit? Yeah. So I think when people think of AMC, and I think people of a certain age, a lot of the shows or the three big shows that they associate with AMC is Breaking Bad, Mad Men, and The Walking Dead. The Walking Dead is the juggernaut of cable television. It remains the juggernaut of streaming in many ways. It is between the the week of, I believe it was January 6th or January 12th, one of those weeks, it was the number one acquired show on streaming, according to Nielsen. It was the number two streaming show overall, just behind Ginny and Georgia season two on Netflix. And so this is a really, really big show that people are paying attention to. The issue with all three of those shows is that to your point, one, they don't own Mad Men. That's owned by Lionsgate, and it's currently streaming on Freebie, which is Amazon's free 
fast ad supported television service, otherwise known as fast. They don't own Breaking Bad, which is owned by Sony television. And with The Walking Dead, so much of it is being licensed out elsewhere that people associate it with what they get in their package with Netflix or internationally with whatever streaming platform that they're using over there. So when you look at AMC as a streaming service, it really is this kind of niche retail offering that is similar to FX or HBO or Showtime. But if we look at the recent wave of what we're seeing happening with those businesses in the streaming era, they're not standing on their own. HBO now is a product of a bygone era. It is now the cornerstone of HBO Max that has Warner Brothers films and uh, Studio Ghibli films and Cartoon Network. And FX is a cornerstone of Hulu that has a lot of other programming. And then when you look at Showtime, it was recently folded into Paramount Plus in a way to kind of find a way to look at a decaying business and say, how do we use this to prop up our streaming business uh, down the road? And so when you look at AMC, it has much more in common with those networks, but it doesn't have the streaming power of the general entertainment to really act as a streaming service that people keep all year round, to your point about how you kind of approach it as a churn and return customer. It seems like being reliant on these third-party licensing deals is good if you just want that revenue year after year to supplement the money you're making on linear TV as part of the cable package. But if that money is going down every year and you want your streaming service eventually to supplement and eventually replace your pay TV revenue, you can't actually do that if the shows aren't exclusive to your streaming app. And like you wrote, there's this problem with audience education. Audiences now have this impression that, okay, we can find Walking Dead or Breaking Bad on Netflix or, or wherever else. So why do they need AMC at all? And if you own that network and you want to eventually bring people back, even when that licensing deal with Netflix ends in however many years, how do you retrain audiences to think that this is a platform they actually want? Right. And you hit on two or three really important points just now. The first is that AMC, like its competitors in the space right now, is in the same situation, which we've been writing about time and time again over the last few months at what I'm uh, over at Pocket, especially in the What I'm Hearing Plus column, which is all of these companies had this really significant revenue and profit coming in from the linear side. And that is decaying faster than they actually thought it was going to decay at. So that's decaying really, really fast. And the streaming side is not seeing the level of profit that they thought they were going to see. If a streaming customer was going to be worth $500, $600, right? AMC Network's chairman, James Dolan, has this kind of $500 customer that would have been the streaming customer, which was this expectation of what that customer would have been to them. If that customer is actually only $100 or $200, you are not going to make the amount of profit let al- or revenue, let alone profit on the streaming side to make up for the lack of necessary profit on the linear side. And so what do you have to do in that situation? If you are AMC and your biggest thing is creating content people like, you are selling that content elsewhere. You are looking at international deals with broadcasting networks uh, in, in Europe or in the Middle East or whatever it might be. If you're domestic, you're looking at things like Netflix and you're saying, we're going to license our content out there. To the point that they see, you know, 100, I think it was 125% increase year over year in the fourth quarter on content licensing. Like they made this huge deal with Netflix. Netflix got The Walking Dead a little bit early. And now AMC has this nice revenue chunk coming in from licensing out content. But the issue to your exact point is that we are training audiences now to say, okay, well, I get my Walking Dead as part of Netflix. This is something that actually FX chief John Landgraf has talked about time and time again with 
because FX and the issue of kind of licensing out to Netflix. But he said back in like 2014, 2015, that it's a necessary revenue path for them because audiences were turning more to streaming. But in sending things over to Netflix, audiences started associating that show with Netflix. And it was a really good case in point is that when Breaking Bad won, I think the best drama back in like 20... 14, like 2013, right around there, the number one show on Netflix that night was Breaking Bad season one. And people of a certain age associated Breaking Bad, not with AMC, but with Netflix. They went to Netflix and they watched their show. They watched Mad Men on Netflix. They watched To Halt and Catch Fire on Netflix. And all of a sudden, the AMC brand, which is really strong in cable, it was a really powerful cable brand, is a diluted brand in streaming. And so if you are looking at a potential acquisition down the road, in the sense that AMC would be acquired, and, and this is before we get into, could they be sold for parts? But if you're looking at acquiring that company all in one, and the only people who can really do that or would be interested in it is something like an Apple, something like an Amazon, what are you actually getting with that acquisition? You're not necessarily getting Breaking Bad. You're not necessarily getting Better Call Saul. Or you're not necessarily getting Mad Men. So you get all these other shows, The Walking Dead being the biggest one, of course, and The Walking Dead spinoffs. But are audiences going to sign up for Apple TV Plus just for The Walking Dead and some other um, AMC shows that they might not have heard of? Probably not. Does it make more sense for a company who acquires AMC to continue licensing out those shows at a premium rate because it is valuable in Netflix? Yes. And so then therefore, what is the AMC brand in the streaming age is a really important question. Yeah, you, you wrote that we saw something similar happen with The CW, which licensed out a lot of its best stuff over the years to keep the lights on. It was basically just squeezing the last few drops of revenue from the brand equity. And then it's kaput. It, it's, it's sort of gone. Like it's now this shingle on Nexstar or whatever. I, I'm curious if you see any path back for AMC to become a bigger standalone service on its own, or does it just sort of inevitably get bought by one of these bigger platforms that you mentioned, like Apple? I think what is more likely to happen is, and we can take a step back and look at what James Dolan is kind of seeing as the pathway for AMC. And it's almost this really slow and steady wins the race mentality where he's looking at the necessary revenue he needs to continue generating. So licensing out that content, but watching as consolidation continues in the industry, watching as other players really figure out how to better optimize their um, portfolios, watching as the other players really figure out how to make money on streaming and then follow in those footsteps. The issue is that as he continues to license out the content, as he continues to wait and see what happens with all these other companies, the brand of AMC continues to dilute. You know, we saw them gain subscribers in the most recent quarter. They saw a nice uptick in subscribers. They saw an uptick in streaming revenue, and that was in big part because of shows like Interview with the Vampire, which was new and it was a breakout for them, um, and The Walking Dead's final season premiere. But as I explained in the piece, the second show within this big Anne Rice franchise that they're trying to build is not doing as well as they expected it to be, Mayfair Witches. Then you look at shows like The Walking Dead spinoffs. Those aren't as big. You know, Fear of the Walking Dead was pretty big, but the other ones aren't as big as The Walking Dead. And so you kind of have this moment of a lot of their big shows kind of going out, you kind of kind of going into this expiration moment, you have some new shows that are trying to build up that new audience, but it's a really tough moment for AMC in the same way that it's a tough moment for FX and Showtime and all these other companies. And Showtime is pivoting to doing franchises, right? Based on decade old shows, they're kind of saying like, well, we know there's an audience for Dexter and there's an audience for Billion, so why don't we just double down on that? And so if you're AMC, 
the issue with waiting and seeing is that as that brand dilutes and as your market cap potentially decreases, it's really hard to just say, well, we're going to continue licensing out our content while also hoping to be a key streaming player in 10 years when you're training that audience again to say, well, we don't really need to pay for AMC because it ends up elsewhere. And when we do need to pay for AMC, we don't necessarily know if we're going to because we can get a lot of this similar type of content elsewhere. I, I, I keep saying this to friends, the uh, last of us airing on HBO right now is a great show, fantastic show. That first season feels really similar to the first season of The Walking Dead. And so if you're someone who's like, well, I want something with The Walking Dead vibes, but I don't necessarily want to pay for another streaming service. There are other zombie, there are other like post-apocalyptic shows that you can go and get that same fill. And I think with AMC, what's more likely to happen is that it's sold for parts in many ways. You have Sony and Lionsgate come in, they have an understandable uh, interest in stuff that's happening with AMC. You have companies like Apple, companies like Warner Brothers Discovery, companies like Amazon who see aspects of the AMC business that they're really interested in. And then it's sold for, for scraps. And I think that's far more likely just because waiting and seeing at this point at this really pivotal moment is a dangerous game to play. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm I'm rooting for these guys. I, I've absolutely loved some AMC shows over the years. Preacher, I was obsessed with. Dark Winds, I really enjoyed. I was for a few months a subscriber to, to Shudder, which is great. But to your point, Julia, I think part of the problem is they don't have enough of these shows in the library to keep people subscribed and logged in and coming back week after week. And it's just not sustainable now if you don't have that depth and breadth in the content library to keep people paying for that subscription month over month as it becomes easier and easier to cancel your subscription after a couple weeks. Julia, did you watch the new vampire show that came onto AMC, the uh, the new interview with a vampire series? I did. And I think you also brought up a really good point that before we leave, I just wanted to to reiterate, like Shudder is a great service. Um, All Black is a great service. There are these other streaming services within the AMC library. But as you pointed out, the issue with having a lot of what is premium and then what is niche offerings and trying to combine it into a mainstream is that you can have as much of that as you want. You can have as much of the HBO or A24 vibes that you're trying to go for. But if you don't have the Friends or the Big Bang Theory or the Office or the other types of shows that Netflix gets dinged for, but is actually what people are watching, which is something that their executives talk about all the time, people are just going to leave. Like they're just going to go find something elsewhere and there's no shortage of places that they can go. And that is AMC's issue is they're no longer the destination area that they were when they were a cable brand. Well, if James Dolan is listening, I, I just have to say, as much as I enjoy Shutter, the app on Apple TV is terrible. It is so glitchy. Mr. Dolan, fix your app. Juliet, thanks so much for stopping by. Thanks for having me. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. Follow us on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you tomorrow. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13, and produced by Ben Landy, executive editor at Puck. Puck.